what the uh, video technology is. Let's get into our teaching. I grew up in uh, a small town, as most of you know, in a quite a remote area at the time and still somewhat of a pioneering region. My wife's summary line to explain most everything about me is, yeah, he didn't get out much. I remember the first time uh, I did get out to some stuff, and, and, and one of the times was when a circus came to town. I'd heard about circuses, I'd read about circuses, and I was looking forward to go as in the circus, but I was, I was quite disappointed by most of it. I wasn't intrigued by the animals, too tame for me. I mean, <laughs> I could look out my window often and see deer or moose or bear or foxes or even a coyote occasionally. I, I really did not enjoy all of those fair games that you play to get prizes. I, I knew that we didn't have money to throw away, which was what most of it was. I, I wasn't even that excited about the, ri- the rides. Actually, I avoided the rides. I got motion sick just watching the rides. What grabbed me was the main show. And actually, just one activity in the main show. It didn't impress me when they brought the elephant in to show his tame tricks and clowns on unicycles. <laughs> that was not exciting to me. The one thing that impressed me and that stuck with me that sent my stomach doing flip-flops was the trapeze artists. Swinging, leaping, and in abandonment and total trust, going from one trajectory to another. I couldn't walk past a chair in the kitchen without my clumsy feet doing something sideways and tripping on it, sending it flying. Yet here were these graceful people moving from one trajectory to another. We're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, getting to know the real Jesus as people experienced him, the real Jesus as he introduced himself, the real God as he came into this world to walk with us and to invite us to walk with him. Jesus' invitation was what? Come to me and follow me. Last week, chapter 6, we saw that Jesus, as he came home from a dramatic, powerful tour of duty, he came home a hero, and his hometown people stumbled over him. Mark's point, which is echoed in the rest of the New Testament, is that we all have a tripping point. We all have a point where more Jesus just seems to feel like too much Jesus, and we stumble. And we said last week that today we would address the fundamental pattern, the core life Discipline, the core spiritual discipline and decision that will help us over that hump to make Jesus as the one we build on rather than the one we trip over. The core choice that takes us into this whole new trajectory. And let me warn you, before we start this morning, unless and until we recognize that a whole new trajectory is what we need, we will keep tripping over Jesus and We'll just keep back and going back and forth on that old trajectory, our old dysfunctional cycles, and we will never really get where our heart wants us to go. We'll never truly enjoy the beauty and the glory and the thrill of riding with Jesus. So before we enter our teaching, let's just pause, bring our hearts to God, and tell God that we're open to Him this morning, would you? 
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came and lived and died to show us the way and to become our way. And today we pray that we will open our hearts, that you will open our eyes to see that your word truly can become life in us. And we will allow ourselves into that new trajectory every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's turn. If you have your Bibles or uh, get your Bible app out, download uh, the Bible app. Turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. We're skipping over from chapter 6 to 8, and after next week, we'll take another jump, largely because in this journey with Jesus, we want to get to Jesus' earthly destination along with Him at the time of the year that we celebrate the, the, that destination, uh, Jesus' death and His resurrection, Easter time and his ascension to the glory of the throne of the universe. And, and we're picking it up at this point today because this passage we'll look at today is the crux, the, the cross point in Mark's journey with Jesus. The turning point of his life, ministry, and teaching. The point at which Jesus clearly defines that, that watershed point, that point of letting go the old trajectory into a new trajectory. We're going to see two things today. We're going to see some, some common elements of this watershed encounter with Jesus that his disciples have that are common to our uh, watershed encounters with Jesus. And then we're going to spend some time looking at the essence of that watershed choice, the choice that defines whether we're going to trip over Jesus or build on Jesus. So let's look at the elements of this watershed encounter. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? There are several things we need to understand about how Jesus is setting the stage here for this defining encounter. First of all, there's a, there's a phrase in this statement that will come into the foreground in the next three chapters. On the way. If you've studied Mark's gospel, with a, uh, you, you, you'll know that this is a key phrase in Mark's book. This book begins, the very first three verses of the book, with a quote from the prophet Isaiah about how John the Baptist had come to do what? To prepare, to set up for the way of the Lord. There is a way that Jesus will have to take. And what is Jesus' call to those who want to come to him? To follow him along his way. Not to take him as a companion with us on our way, as a consultant with us on our way, but to follow him on his way. And it says that they left their nets to follow him. Or did they? That's the question as we go through the Gospel of Mark. Did they really do that? Along the way, Jesus' disciples are often pretty slow to get it. That phrase, on the way, in this next section of the Gospel, is going to, these three chapters, chapters 8 to 10, is going to be used seven times. Of the 16 times in the book, seven times it talks about being on the way. And now's probably a good time to just show you where we are in this whole journey with Jesus as Mark describes it. In Mark's account of Jesus' life, 
uh, trying to help us come to terms with who he was and what he did. Mark, Mark portrays this in, very, in, in three very distinct stages. Yeah, there's uh, sort of three acts of a drama, act one, act two, and act three. Act one, uh, from chapters one through most of chapter eight, talks about who is Jesus. And act two, and, and, and a lot of his teaching is, is by parables, right? Chapter two, it moves a little more to direct teaching, as we'll see today, and there are just a few of these acts, miracles. Act three, it's all action. Jesus executing his mission. The first act, there's the crowds. It's everybody. The crowds, the leaders, the disciples, and Jesus. In the second act, the act that we're moving in today, it's mostly just Jesus and his disciples. They're always together. And the crowd is only pulled in occasionally. This is zooming in on Jesus and those who really want to follow him. Act three, it's Jesus alone. Everybody else has abandoned him. Jesus himself follows through and executes on the mission. In Acts chapter 1, a lot of it was in the boat, crossing the lake. It was going from here to there, all through the towns and villages. In chapter 2, or in in Act 2, it's on the way with a very specific focus, on the way to Jerusalem, to Jesus' destiny. Act 3, it's all in Jerusalem. In Act 1, the failure is the failure of people to see who Jesus really is. In Act 2, there's this failure, even as we'll see today, to accept what it means that Jesus really is, which leads in Act 3 to their failure to follow through. So, with that as a big picture context, here we come. On the way, Jesus went with his disciple to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. To where? On the way to Caesarea Philippi. Where was Caesarea Philippi? Jesus had been in in Bethsaida, which is right on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, to do this miracle. If you look at the paragraph before this, the healing of a blind man. And rather than going straight to Jerusalem, first of all, he goes north. Instead of going south to Jerusalem, he goes north to Caesarea Philippi. So I thought this was about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Is this sort of a Jonah-like thing? He's going the opposite way? Not at all. Because the important thing is not where Caesarea Philippi was. The important thing is what Caesarea Philippi was. There's something significant about Caesarea Philippi for these followers of Jesus who were beginning to see in Jesus the deliverer God was sending. Actually, there's three things that are painful memories for God's people, the Jews, memories that they wanted desperately to undo. It was here at Caesarea Philippi, almost 200 years earlier, that a man by the name of Antiochus, Antiochus IV, won a decisive battle that recreated some political boundaries after the Maccabean Revolt, when some Jews had had enough and tried to take on the powers in their own might. It was a battle that had been predicted in the visions of, some of you may remember, the book of Daniel, chapter 8, chapter 11. Antiochus, who was the Hitler of his century toward the Jewish people, 
Antiochus, who called himself Epiphanes, the appearing of God. He was the first king who put on his coins, God manifest, God Epiphanes. This whole time was a time of of, of painful memory for the faithful Jews, and going to Caesarea Philippi brought up a lot of feelings about what God said he would do to make right and how they had blown it. But yet, somehow, it's got to happen. The second thing about Caesarea Philippi is not a memory of the distant past. They're living in it. Not too long ago, Philip, the puppet king over this region, named this city in honor of Caesar. Caesarea Philippi. Philip's Caesar. Caesarville. A reminder to any Jew who came in here that they were under the thumb of Rome And their current puppet king, who is a relative of Philip, who named that, Herod. You know what Herod did in this town? About 45 years before the time that they walked in there, Herod had built a temple dedicated to Caesar in the name of the Greek god Pan. Caesarea Philippi was that brought a lot of painful and powerful feelings. And for the faithful, this was the place like no other that reminded them of what God had not yet done for them. And it was to Caesarea Philippi that Jesus goes to begin his final journey to his appointed destiny to be the true deliverer. The God-appointed deliverer for whom they were longing to put them on a whole new trajectory. So let's, let's stop and, and identify the first step in this watershed encounter that Jesus sets up for this defining moment. What does he do? He takes them, he takes us into places where life just isn't right. Places that remind us of what is not yet complete. Ever been in that place? How much of life is in that place, right? Much of life is defined by the gaps. The gap between what we think could be or what we think should be and what we're experiencing. The gap between who we think we were created to be but can't be. And I don't have to give you examples. You have them in your mind already. Big ones, little ones, daily ones major life-defining moments, but every single one of them are defining ones. Expectation gaps, desire gaps, dream gaps. And in this place with his disciples, not just the 12, but, but everyone who is beginning to see in Jesus, the one who might be worth following, Jesus asked the question that everything in this book to this point has been moving towards. He asked them, who do people say I am? That's the driving question of the first act of the book. And Jesus is testing to see whether, where his disciples, the ones who claim to be following him, where they are and how they are answering that question. Now he starts by asking, who do people say I am? And they give Jesus, they give Jesus what, what they've been hearing, all of the positive things. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. Elijah. 
Elijah was actually a, a key fascination for first century Jews, more so than David, more so than Moses, more so than Joshua, because the last prophet that had written, Malachi, had told them that before the great day of the Lord would come, Elijah was going to show up. John the Baptist was that Elijah who prepared the way for the Lord, but he died. And so some people thought, maybe Jesus is John the Baptist, come back to life. Or, or one of the other prophets. These are, these are all positive things about Jesus. And you see how Jesus might be setting them up at Caesarea Philippi, the site of loss, the site of longing, where things went south according to their understanding of God's plan. Who do people say that I am? Can you see what he's asking? He's sending them up to think at Caesarea Philippi. What are the polls saying? Is it time to call the election now? Kick off the campaign. And their answer, well, you know, you got some pretty high ratings in the polls. The, the, the time is right. And then Jesus makes it personal. By the way, who, who do you say I am? What about you? And Peter gives what seems like the right answer. Up to this point, the only title his disciples have given Jesus in Mark is teacher, rabbi. But now, in Caesarea Philippi, it's like, oh my goodness, this is the one the prophet Daniel saw in his visions. He's taken us to Caesarea Philippi so that we could see that. He is the, the rock from Daniel chapter 2 that comes in and crushes all of the human governments who set themselves up against God. The one who sets himself up as the foundation to build on. He is the one from the visions of chapter 8 and 11 of Daniel who will set to right what Antiochus has desecrated, destroyed, what has caused us to have this poor self-image that we have. And so Peter says, I know, I got it. You are the Christ. The penny drops. Or does it? We have to see one more piece to this setting to get the full picture. We need to see how this question fits into this act two part that we're in. This experience doesn't just happen at Caesarea Philippi. It happens after a significant event. Act, this Act 2, chapters 8 to 10, starting at 8.22, is, is very tightly structured in a beautiful way. Uh, it begins, it begins and ends with the healing of a blind man. That's the brackets around this section, the healing of a blind man. The first healing, uh, which is mentioned in the passage that leads into this encounter with Jesus, the first healing is, is in two stages. The initial stage, well, well he sees, but... He's really short-sighted, really short-sighted. And then the second stage, he gets it all. In chapter 10, at the end of this section, we have the healing of a blind man, full sight, immediately. And immediately adjacent to these blind man healings, after the first one and before the last one, is someone answering the question, who is Jesus? With the same answer. Jesus is the Christ. The first one of Peter 
doesn't seem to be acceptable. The second one, the blind man healed in one stage, seems to be the right answer. What's with that? Now, who is Mark's main source? Just for your new people, I have to do that once, once, every service. Who is Peter's main source for his material about Jesus, and who has he processed this with most? It's Peter. Peter. It is widely understood that after Jesus died, rose again, after the Holy Spirit has come in and turned the lights on in their minds and hearts, that it was then that they understand what Jesus was saying and how he was setting them up. These healings of blind men are not just about two men being able to see physically. They're about spiritual insight, about life insight. And especially with Jesus, we often get there in stages. It doesn't have to happen in two stages like the second guy, but it can only happen in one stage if we firmly come to grips with this defining encounter that Jesus is going to have with his disciples. And Peter is not yet there. And in between those two brackets is this on the way following peace, where Jesus three times actually in three separate encounters says almost the same thing as we're going to see today. The question is, will they get it? Will they get the full picture of what Jesus has come to do and give themselves fully into a new trajectory? Will we get it? So let's look what happens when Jesus answered, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he's ready to leave that place and begin the campaign. Let's let's get this show on the road. And so is Jesus, but he strictly charged them. That word charged is rebuked. It's the same word that is used when he talked to demons. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. What? I thought we were supposed to be telling people about Jesus. Come on, Jesus, the time is right. We can't miss the moment. Caesarea Philippi, what a great place to kick off the campaign. We've seen what you can do. It's time to take this to the next level. But Jesus sits them down and has a little teaching session with them, a session which will determine whether Peter's eyes have been opened all the way or whether he's still short-sighted. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, clearly, openly, directly. No more parables, no more metaphors. It's read my lips. This is what I came to do. This is where I'm going. This is the first of three times in this journey in in this section. There are three what we call passion predictions in this second section of Mark. Jesus is going to stop, tell them what this journey is, what his mission is all about, and what it means to follow him. It's like, well, Peter, you got the title right. But before you go around proclaiming it from the rooftops and recruiting people into this journey, you've got to understand what it means 
for me and for you. You see, the word Christ simply means anointed one. That's, it's, 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 a, it's a Greek version of, of the Hebrew word, which is translated Messiah. But it really simply means being anointed by God. In the Old Testament, there were three kinds of people that were primarily anointed. Prophets, kings, and priests. But it was also the name given to one that they were anticipating who would come as the anointed leader of his people, the new King David, to lead them back to God and to deliver them from their human oppressors. And as they're standing in Caesarea Philippi, here's how I know that Jesus is setting them to think about the book of Daniel and what Daniel prophesied. Because as they're standing in Caesarea Philippi, the symbol of the violation of God's rule and the oppression of God's people, thinking of that great prophecy of Daniel, Jesus uses the term that Daniel uses for this figure who would be to come, son of man. He messes with their minds just a little bit more. In chapter 7 of Daniel, listen to what he says about the Christ that Peter's thinking about. In my vision I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All people, all nations... And men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And as Jesus used that title, Son of Man, for himself, tapping into their thinking about the place where they were, Peter is probably saying, I know, that's what I'm talking about. I believe you are that one. And it's like a sudden, jarring, total 180 as Jesus finishes the sentence. The Son of Man who is the Messiah, the Christ, must suffer, be rejected, and be killed. You see, there was also this stream of teaching, especially from the prophet Isaiah, and some allusions in the book of Psalms about a, what was called a suffering servant. But nobody, none of the biblical writers, nor any of the teachers, had put those two people together as one. Nobody had ever put together that Messiah and suffering servant were one. What they didn't understand was that for this one to come as the anointed leader from God, the prophet who proclaimed and was God's word, the king who ruled over God's kingdom, and the priest who brought people's hearts back to God and gave them access to God, he had to be the suffering one who bore the sin of the people in his death, not one to just offer a sacrifice, but to be the sacrifice. And this is the test. Are Peter's eyes open all the way? Will he allow them to be opened all the way? Or is he short-sighted? Rather than process what Jesus is saying, rather than try and absorb it and think it through and allow it to become an aha thing, maybe adjust his expectations Peter took him aside, it says, and he rebuked Jesus. Like, what? Peter rebukes God. 
Peter is like me, right? But Jesus, turning aside, turning his eyes away from Peter, looking at his disciples. In other words, he's saying, I'm talking to Peter now, but I know he's saying just exactly what you guys are thinking. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. You are not thinking about God's interests. You're thinking about your interests. Peter, that's not God's agenda. That's your agenda. You are defining based on what you think is best for you, what God's agenda is for me, for you. Peter has just hit his tripping point. He's stumbling over Jesus because his eyes are only half open. They're short-sighted. Yes, Peter, you're right, but you're so wrong. Because you are trying to control the agenda based on what you think is best for you. And this is the heart of that DTR, defining the relationship encounter. Will I see this in light of what God wants for me or in light of what I want God to want for me. We think we know what we need from God. We think we know what God's agenda must be for us. And how he has to deliver that for us, right? Remember Jonah? What was his issue? What God wants for Jonah is not what Jonah wants God to want for Jonah. And of course, we know what, what's, what God want, should want for us, right? That's the issue. That's that defining moment to see whether we're going to go on a new trajectory or just stay back in our old trajectory. And rather than processing what God says, what God clearly says in His Word He wants for us, we use our powers of reason that God has given us to make it sound so reasonable that God should want for us what we want for us. It's the lie of Satan, the lie of the garden. You know better than God what God should want for you. And so Jesus turns again from Peter and addresses Peter, the disciples, the crowd, and including us, and once again speaking clearly, directly, definitively, Jesus identifies that defining the relationship choice. It's the choice that puts us on a new trajectory. The choice is the beginning of building on Jesus rather than tripping over Jesus. A choice that is a one-time definitive thing, but also a daily, everyday, every life situation discipline. You say you want to follow me? Okay. It's actually pretty simple. My must-do needs to become your must-do. That's it. Calling the crowd to him, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's it. Deny myself. That's not talking about giving up some things. 
It's talking directly and definitively and clearly about what Jesus meant. Deny yourself. It's talking about letting go of your agenda. Those things that you think you need to be you. To be fulfilled. To be complete. And and the only way you can do that, take up your cross. Which means, die to yourself. Not just deny yourself, but die to yourself. We think that taking up our cross means going through some pain. And it may include that. But that's not taking up a cross. A cross was an instrument of death. Dying to yourself. You can't get any more total than that. This is not just putting myself in the back seat where I can still be, can try and direct the driver. At least irritate the driver. This is an end of me decision. The way Tim Keller puts it in his commentary on Mark, it's says this, taking up your cross means for you to die to self-determination, to self-control or to control of your life, and die to using Jesus for my agenda. Deny yourself, die to yourself, and follow me. And where's he going? (laughs) To death. To the place of his death, where we, he can grant us his life. We can't have his life unless we die to ourselves. Why would we do that? Because it's only in dying to what we think we are and what we think we need that we can actually receive the gift of becoming who we really want to be. It's the only way to get onto that new trajectory, the one we really want. And that's what Jesus goes on to say in various, several just cryptic little statements. Whoever would save his life is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You can't have both my life and your life. You can't have both my will and your will. It's got to go one way. But if you keep your life, there will be a day it's gone. If you give up your life, There will come a day, starting the day you make that choice, that you will have it forever and to the full. The dying comes in very daily life decisions. It comes in relationships, marriage relationships, family relationships, work relationships, friendships. And here's the secret. As we submit, die to ourselves in those relationships, as we submit, we are not submitting to that person. This is not a power struggle between you and that person. That's how we see it. You got to see it like Jesus does. This is a power struggle between me and Jesus. You're not giving it to that person. You're giving it to Jesus. Makes a lot of difference, doesn't it? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and give up his soul, his true self, his self the way God designed and God wants to shape it to be? All those things we give up there... There are things that aren't going to last forever. For what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Really, you're not giving up as much if you die to yourself as if you don't die to yourself. You see it? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Let me just spend a bit of time trying to help us to see what Jesus wants us to see here. Just a couple of short blip stuff. Number one, to die is to die. It's total, it's final. We try to fake die. We're okay with fake dying, which is basically, okay, I'll, I'll put it aside, I'll wait a little longer, but you better still deliver it. That's not dying. That's just a new kind of manipulating God, right? That's fake dying. We think of dying as saying no. And yes, it is, but as is sometimes pointed out to organizational leaders who are, who are trying to help people change behaviors, we'll never say no to something until we see a bigger yes. In calling, ourselves to say no, calling us to say no to ourselves, to deny ourselves, Jesus ends with the bigger yes. You will get my life. You will get me. Why would I want to do that? Because it's not so much about what I'm dying to. It's about what I'm dying into. That's what I need to see. We saw that last year, right about this time of year, as we talked from John chapter 12 about that whole principle of a kernel falling into the ground, a seed falling into the ground, and dying so it can produce new life. That's a, that's a principle of nature. And Jesus says, that's what I'm asking you to do. It's not what you're dying to, it's what you're dying into. But this is such a tough sell in our self-centered world, isn't it? We have this idea that loving ourselves gives us the wherewithal to love other people. We've been taught that in order to live positively, we need, positively, we need a high self-esteem, a high view of ourselves. Did you realize that until the 20th century, basically all cultures in the world always believed that a high view of ourselves was the root cause of all the evil in the world? Uh, Tim Keller has this wonderful little booklet called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And he points out that in our modern Western culture, we've developed this utterly opposite cultural consensus, the basis of contemporary education, the way we incarcerate prisoners, the foundation of most modern legislation, the starting point for modern counseling is exactly the opposite of the, the, the traditional consensus. We flipped. Suddenly. Is that because we're so much more enlightened, so much more driven by concrete facts and data than every culture from previous generation? Well, Keller references an article in the New York Times magazine, which is not exactly a conservative old-school rag, an article in the 2000s, not exactly from times long ago, by a psychologist, a secular psychologist, Lauren Slater. The article is called The Trouble with Self-Esteem. She wasn't writing out of the blue or really anything new. She was just putting, putting on the table what the research experts, the scientists among social scientists have known for a long time. Here's what she says. There's no evidence that low self-esteem is, is a big problem at all in society. Get this. She quotes three current studies on the subject of self-esteem. All three of these studies which come to this conclusion and she states... People with high self-esteem pose a greater threat to those around them than people with low self-esteem. And feeling bad about ourselves is not the source of our country's biggest, most expensive social problems. And Jesus would say, that's what I'm talking about. 
Keller goes on to say, you see, the thing about the low self-esteem theory of misbehavior is that it's so attractive. You do not have to make any moral judgments in order to deal with society's problems. All you have to do is support people and build them up. I would also add that it's attractive because we are by nature self-focused, right? You see, it's not hard to get that hating myself is a ditch that'll get me nowhere. But when someone says, I hate myself, Jesus would not say, oh, good girl. That's where I want you. But the solution to hating myself is not loving myself. Loving myself is just a ditch on the opposite side of the road. And it's actually a ditch that has the very same contours, looks very similar. Because when I say I hate myself, the problem is often that I'm too in love with myself. Because I am focusing on myself. The solution to both hating myself and loving myself is learning to forget about myself. As Jesus puts it, deny myself. Get over yourself. He might even sing along with the eagles. Get over it. Get over it. All this whining and crying and pitching a fit. Get over yourself. Get over yourself. Right? It's Paul, the religious Jesus hater who gave his life to getting rid of Jesus' followers, who when the lights were turned on in his mind, sees this so well. In the book of Colossians chapter 3, he says the reason we need to put to death whatever belongs to that fleshly part of me is, is because that in Jesus, in his death, we have already died. You died. Your life is now hidden, secure, untouchable with Christ and God. Because I have already traded my death-bound life for his life in and for me. It's not just a matter of him forgiving my sins. It's that he has granted us a life transplant, his life for ours. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is, not will be, he is a whole new creation. The old is gone, died, the new has come. Romans chapter 6, for we know that our old self was killed, crucified with him. So to exercise the tough discipline of daily crucifying myself, it's just, it's just logical. It's just being authentic. Can you see how this whole discipline of denying myself and dying to myself is the core spiritual discipline? No other spiritual discipline, I don't care what it is, praying 24 hours a day, reading your Bible all day long, no other discipline will mean anything unless it's through this discipline. I love how Will Walker puts it in his devotional guide called Journey to the Cross. The norm in our culture is to sacrifice whatever we have to get what we want. The way of true life is to sacrifice everything we think we want because of what we already have in Jesus. So as we wrap it up today and head to celebrating this ceremony, which is the crux of it all, what Jesus did for us and calls us to enter into with him. The question is, am I dying in order to live? Am I dying to live? Or am I actually dying to life? Because if you don't die in order to live, you're dying to the life that could be yours. You're dying to true life. And so as we 
share this together today. Share it with Jesus. Would you visualize what Jesus would say to you if you were Peter? How do you want me to die today? There's something all of us needs to die to ourselves. There's some way that is called to express that. To see, receive these elements with integrity is to say, yes, that's the way I want to live. I want to receive his life by dying to mine. And I want to live his life by continuing to figure out how I need to die to myself. Let's pray together.